Hello and welcome to Tech Crack, the podcast series brought to you by Sync NI. We are Northern Ireland's leading technology and business media company, and this podcast series will see us interview some of the best, brightest, and most influential thought leaders from across NI's business and tech sectors. Find out more on SyncNI.com or follow us across our social media channels. And enjoy. This week, I spoke with Deepa Mancler. She is a consultant in equality, diversity, and inclusion, a TEDx speaker and CEO of her own medtech company, amongst many other accolades. With the tragic death of George Floyd in the US and the Black Lives Matter movement sweeping the globe, Deepa discussed with me how tech firms worldwide and those locally in Northern Ireland need to change and adapt to become more inclusive and more aware of diversity and race as a whole. Diversity and inclusion within the tech sector well, first of all, globally, because I, I did a story the other day and it was about how these tech giants such as Facebook and Amazon and, and Nextdoor are showing their solidarity on social media for the Black Lives Matter movement. But I've read sort of a lot of criticism of people online saying, well, it's just sort of like the term I read was performative wokeness. And a lot of it can just be to 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 seem to show to seem like they're doing something uh but then whenever you actually get the facts up about the, the diversity in their workforces, nothing much has really changed even in the last five years and since 2014. Um, the likes of Facebook and Amazon and Google pledged to have more of a diverse workforce, but it's barely, I know in the US, it's barely risen by a percentage. Um, yep. I just want to talk to you, why do you think that is? And what are your views on tech giants now sort of, attempting to show their solidarity on social media? Um, okay, so the, the, the latest case with George Floyd has been really interesting. It's not the first incident of um, somebody innocent being murdered by uh, a police person, and nor is it going to be the last. Um, and I suppose a positive aspect is that there is so much interest in this, but um, that there's a part of me that you know can't help but being a bit cynical. There's a sort of a hysteria that takes place over social media. Um, there's people posting lots of um, experiences and empathetic responses on social media. But th- th- that's going to die down and something else will take its place. Um, but when that dies down and something else has taken its place, black people are still going to be black. I'm still going to be Indian. I'm still going to experience the things that I experience and other, you know, and I use black in the broadest uh, um, uh, sense in terms of a political identity. And I've always defined myself as black, which will sound odd um, to some people because I'm, I'm not... Um, seen as white within um, the UK and in terms of the experiences that I've had. So that's still going to be there. All the inequalities that are happening in the UK are still going to be there. I mean, we've seen with COVID-19 how that has exacerbated existing inequalities in our society and the Public Health England published a report Um, this week, which has shown how there's been such a massive disproportionate impact on people who are older men and people from black and minority ethnic communities. Um, I mean, the first 10 doctors who died 
as a result of COVID-19 were all black and minority ethnic people. Um, so I think there's something around, whilst it's amazing that there's been this um, demonstration of support around George Floyd, there are issues closer to home which need to be challenged. You know, we have our own um, experience of institutional uh, racism in the UK and in Northern Ireland and maybe it's not as sexy to address that but that's that's where the real work needs to take place. Mm -hmm. Do you find, because I know last time we talked um, it was for Sink and I's Women in Tech magazine edition and I know we were more focused on on the gender gap in terms of tech especially within the UK um, and one of the things you said was you know, people often ask, why don't women get into tech? And yeah, you were sort of saying, people say that like the problems with women, but actually yeah. it's sort of the over justification of why so many men are involved with it. Um, in terms of, of that within the tech force, especially here in Northern Ireland, when it comes to black and ethnic minority groups, you know, what do you think the problem is, is there? Do you think it's that same sort of people don't really want them working for their companies or do you know what do you think the the difficulty is there i i mean i i actually don't understand this because there is a there's a you know tech companies are driven by commercial considerations mm -hmm. and there are just um overwhelming they, you know uh, equality diversity and inclusion it's a complete no-brainer when you look at this just in terms of pounds and how much money you're either losing or making. So women leave the tech industry at a 45% uh, higher rate than men. So, and one of the most important investments that any company is making is in hiring new people. So it costs a company every time an employee leaves. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a really interesting article on employee benefit news that employers actually end up paying 33% of an employee's annual sal salary to hire a replacement if that worker leaves. And that just doesn't make good, you know, it's, it just doesn't make business sense, does it? I mean, in terms of um, the stark economics of it. So I, I, I think there's institutionalized sexism within some tech companies, you know, and if they're fully committed to EDI, they need to be reviewing all of their policies, their values, their culture. They need to be looking at their recruitment strategies. They need to be looking at performance evaluation criteria. Um, and they need to have actually really transparent procedures for pay, for bonuses, for promotions, and who gets the really interesting, you know, project allocations. Um, uh, so, uh, um, and in terms of race, uh, you know, I mean, you're right. We, the, sorry, the first question that you asked was in terms of the global giants, Facebook, Google, Amazon, that they haven't really moved in terms of race. And it's, I, I think, I mean, there are institutional factors within those organizations that are just perpetuating bias and privilege. And if one of the impacts of George Floyd is that organizations start to have a more honest look at um, where they are right now and where they want to be and how they can get there um, then then that's amazing but they a lot of those answers lie within um, the companies themselves and within employees 
you know, um, but I, I, I'm not a hundred percent confident that, um, there is going to be, um, systematic meaningful change off the back of this. I mean, the first women's right convention was held in the U S in 1848. So that's 172 years ago that we've been arguing for gender equality. Um, and again, the economics around this are really overwhelming. Um, so I, I, I just think that this is a fight that's going to go on. And part of what's important in terms of what's happened is um, us un- understanding our history. So um, particularly within the UK, there is very little taught in terms of colonialism and slavery mm-hmm. and the impact that that had in terms of the wealth of the UK and the impact that it had in America, that the slave owners were predominantly European. Um, and when slavery was abolished, the reparations that were given to slave owners um, in today's terms was equivalent to 16 to 17 billion pounds. And at that time, it was 40% of the national budget of the government. So uh, the government actually ended up taking out a loan to repay it which was only repaid in 2015. So what's ironic is that people across the UK have been paying taxes to pay people that have benefited from the slave trade. And nowhere is that taught, you know? Um, I went to school in in England and in history, um, you know, my parents are Indian. They came to England in the 60s directly as a result of that colonial history. Um, and that's not t- taught. Uh, um, Barclays, Bearings, HSBC, the Church of England, they've all benefited from this slave trade, you know, and there are archives now being set up to list individuals and institutions that have benefited from this. But we actually don't understand this in terms of the impact that it has on communities today. And slavery and colonialism has had a direct impact on um so many communities in in America. You know, it's no coincidence that there's higher levels of poverty and drug addiction and poor health outcomes. It's all connected. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I, I <laughs> probably rambling. I can't even remember. No, not at all. It's it genuinely is so interesting. It's one of those things as well because whenever whenever this whole thing happened, um, not that obviously the Black Lives Matter movement has always been going on, but it's taken such a um, it's gotten obviously a lot more attention on social media and a lot of people are saying it's not the it's not the responsibility of black and ethnic minority people to educate white people on this matter you know white people should have to go and you know they should go and educate themselves they shouldn't be ignorant but it's sort of like what you're saying i think a lot of even even black and ethnic minority children living in the uk whenever they're growing up they, they don't even know their own history you know if everyone was sort of taught that history from a young age you know do you think that might have a sort of different impact on that generation growing up like to say say which is brought into the uk curriculum now for example do you think then 10 20 years time there would be just like a subconscious difference made within company structures by then if if today's children were getting taught that now no i mean i think it needs to be a a system-wide approach education is definitely a key part of it and the um, study of history becomes really interesting in Northern Ireland, doesn't it, in terms of 
colonization and it becomes very um, fractious politically how, how you teach that and, and, and is that kind of too soon in terms of post-conflict and the troubles because those memories are still deep and raw um, so I, I think you know that needs to be mentioned it would be a huge omission not to mention that um, so educate honest education is a part of it but it's also about um, it's about enforcing the equality and anti-discrimination legislation that we have it's about leadership in companies mm -hmm. it's about um, people committing to this fully within organizations um, it's uh, it's about all aspects of society you know i mean I, I, just a, a really sort of stark example is i serve as an executive director on um, several boards and we have so something like the nhs where so many black and minority ethnic people make up the workforce the leadership is often this snow-capped mountain it's 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 white and it tends to be predominantly male still you know and why is that the case and you know lord davis wrote an excellent report on the sort of gender balance of the top FTSE uh, 100 boards in 2011 and by July 2018, there was still only 29% of boards had a woman on them. And that can sometimes be just one woman. Um, you know, so what, you know, what's going on? It's, there's a, there's a, a network that's at play. Um, there's people perhaps, uh, I don't know, a lack of understanding in terms of their own privilege and their own unconscious bias. Um, you know, and that's something that each one of us can take responsibility for in terms of understanding that. But I suppose the motivation um, to do that is less, you know, if you're wealthy, if you're in a, uh, a great job, um, if you're not experiencing poverty, if your health outcomes are better. Um, and that's where companies perhaps have a lot more um, responsibility but but it i mean it comes back down to leadership if leadership is not representative then we're not going to have good quality leaders i don't think um and that has to be a focus of of, of action i think and you know and going back to sort of the tech companies there's a huge concern at the moment in terms of, um, I mean, one example, uh, facial recognition technology mm -hmm. um, and data gaps, because data informs uh, the way uh, products and apps are coded. Um, and because we don't have a diversity of teams uh, approaching problem solving, we're not getting the full representation in terms of the diversity of needs that exist in society. And the clearest way that I can kind of represent that is through Joy Bulam Winnie from MIT. She's done so much work around AI bias and facial recognition technology, where there can it can be up to 40% false positive matches if you're from a minority group. Now, the London Metropolitan and police has actually brought in facial recognition technology and that's deeply worrying 
And that links back to what I was saying before, that there are fights that are closer to home that we need to engage with. You know, why is a police force in London, which is one of the most ethnically diverse, using technology that is so inconsistent and is racially biased? Mm -hmm. um, we have a sort of another situation where data gap is actually killing people. So in 2016, the British Medical Journal reported that young women with heart disease were twice as likely to die in hospital as men, which is, you know, I mean, I was shocked when I read this. And it's because the risk prediction models that we're using were developed for patients who were two thirds male mm -hmm. and something. And I mean, this is just crazy. Aspirin, a commonly used prevention method against heart disease is actually harmful for the majority of women. So not only are doctors missing heart attacks when women experience them, because women don't have the classic, you know, the Hollywood heart attack with the yeah. um, chest and left arm. Yeah, the women tend not to show those symptoms. So women who are experiencing a heart attack, they actually might not have any chest pains at all, but they're more likely to present with stomach pain or breathlessness or nausea or fatigue. So in this day and age, for incidents like that to be happening are, are just shocking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how, um, I, I think I, I said this when, you know, uh, we worked on the article together. We don't know what we don't know. And knowledge is power. And it's like, how do we fill that gap so that people in communities, all, you know, all people in communities are actually empowered to find out more so that we can be um, more proactive citizens, which will benefit everybody in society ultimately. Yeah, I think what you were saying as well there, I was reading quite a bit about, um, about the racial profiling with, with AI and facial recognition and um, ju just examples, because I know a lot of companies are doing this, but like Amazon in, in the US, they have a, a ring doorbell initiative and then a, a, I think a platform called Neighbours and that's partnered with, thousand police departments across the US but then that creates like a widespread surveillance network um, and is sort of turning people's fear of radicalized like other people invading their neighborhood and then that's turned into like it's created almost like a race war and the next door app I think in America is doing it too and then whenever I was reading about this you know a lot of people are saying oh well you'd never get that here like what you're saying like that's all sort of the madness that's going on in the US and you never get that here in Northern Ireland, but um, like I know there was there was a survey uh, in 2017 when people in Northern Ireland were asked, "Has racism has racism gotten worse here in the last five years?" And 49% say that it has, and it's kind of like what you're saying. Like in 2020, it is shocking that things like this are still happening. But do you think, as as a woman from an ethnic minority group yourself, Deepa, living in Northern Ireland? Do you, do you think that, do you think that it's gotten worse? What, like, what has your experience been, especially working within um, the professional tech sector? So, I mean, it's, it's, it's great, you know, and it's really interesting that you've kind of linked this back to Northern Ireland. And, and you're right, I mean, there was a survey in 2018, Life and Time survey, where it revealed that 52% of people would not accept a Muslim person. Mm -hmm. Um, and nor would they accept a 25, 25% uh, would not accept somebody from black and minority ethnic communities as work colleagues. Um, and we, I think over the past five years, there's been 
320 hate crimes against Muslims alone. Mm -hmm. um, now, there's a, in terms of hate crime, which the PSNI collates, uh, th there is uh, evidence that there's huge underreporting. So we live in a society that is divided, you know, through the conflicts still, um, sectarian attacks are increasing, transphobic attacks are increasing. Um, attacks on the basis of disability are increasing. Now, interestingly, in the March 2020 PSNI report, they showed numbers had fallen for racism and homophobia. But I, I, I worry in terms of the huge underreporting, um, and you have to connect it back in terms of you know the culture of this place, the fact that it took till the 13th of January this year for same-sex marriage to be legalized. Um, you know, um, the messages that that sends out if you're a young LGBTQ plus person in Northern Ireland and levels of acceptance and tolerance, there will be so many racist and homophobic incidents happening on a daily basis um, now that don't get recorded. Now, in terms of me, um, you know, I, I'm fortunate enough that um, I can choose where I live. I can choose how I construct my day-to-day -day life. Have I experienced racism in Northern Ireland? Yes, of course I have. I have two young children here. Was I, you know, were we fearful in terms of what they were going to experience when they went to school? Yes, we were, and yes, they have. Um, you know, but you, uh, I've, I'm, fortunate enough to construct my life in such a way that I can minimize that. Not everybody has those same opportunities and not everybody is fortunate enough to do that. And that's not right. And I think the biggest thing that comes out of the George Floyd um, death for me is that um, there's so much inequality. We have to address all of it. It's not right just to pick on one aspect of it because there is racism, but there's also homophobia, there's gender inequality, there's poverty. You know, all of those things will affect a person's health outcomes, their access to quality of housing, their employment opportunities, whether they're unemployed, where they live. It will affect people's mental health. Um, you know, so it's, if, if this gives us an opportunity to, to really take ownership of a whole range of issues, I think it will help improve society. And I just want to share one example. So on the Tuesday, uh, everybody was posting, you know, the hashtag Black Lives Matter in the black box. Mm -hmm. So on LinkedIn, I did three posts that day. I had done two posts first, which were ex uh, around black and minority ethnic communities and the overrepresentation in terms of death mm -hmm. um, as a result of COVID-19. And another one about staff who worked, black minority ethnic staff who worked in the NHS, um, because they tend to be more at the front line because they're lower paid jobs, etc. cetera. Um, they were talking about their fears um, in terms of managing the risk around this and how exposed they were and then my third post was around Black Lives Matter. I just did a quote from Martin Luther King. Now, that post had, I think, just under a thousand views and, you know, I don't know, between 30 and 40 likes. 
the other two posts had minimal interaction and you know they had some views maybe um, I don't even know if they secured any likes and that was really interesting to me because those two issues are just as relevant in terms of Black Lives Matter and, and this is kind of what I'm talking about when I when I use the word hysteria and social media people get so fixated on this single point of focus they don't actually step back and see how the issue is relevant more locally um, and affects people perhaps that they know and work with you know and I just thought that that was a really interesting example of people's myopia at times around particular issues um, so if there's anything that comes from this podcast and people listening to it you may completely disagree with me just take a step back and um, look at what's actually happening in society around us to um, you know many other groups um, because I think you know we can only take responsibility for ourselves to do that um, and it and it's not just the these few days you know whilst this is on the media spotlight this will go away from the news story something else will come up you know we had the Rodney King atrocity in the I think it was the 90s and then Stephen Lawrence um, which was horrific when that happened as well and I mean it's interesting the Stephen Lawrence did have uh, an enormous impact in terms of policing in England at the time and I think there was, I mean, I'm not saying policing is perfect in the UK by any means, but there was a root and branches review through the work that Stephen Lawrence's parents and the lawyer took up in the aftermath of that. Um, but it, this is not going to be the last. This is going to happen again. Yeah. I think as well, the way you're talking about, you know, the fact that those posts you put on LinkedIn didn't get as much traction as your you know, this, this hashtag Black Lives Matter one. Um, I don't know, I think there's a lot of problems in terms of with tech companies, the likes of LinkedIn and Instagram and, and TikTok and things have faced a bit of criticism because of the way their algorithms work um, around those hashtags. But even in you just saying that, you know, whenever everyone did the Blackout Tuesday thing with, with the Black Grid, um, like you say, it's sort of social media hysteria because it was sort of seen to be if someone didn't post that or if a company didn't post that black square on their grid, it was seen to be, oh, well, they're automatically, you know, racist or they're, or they're against the cause. But it could be the case that they just weren't on that social media platform that day or, you know, people are doing these things, but they're just doing that to sort of seem like they're part of the group, but they're not actually doing anything more to educate or, you know, protest or donate. Um, it's more of a, of a lip service sort of thing. Do you think because you are a diversity and inclusion speaker, do you think that there are companies now that are implementing these diversity and inclusion positions within their organizations to sort of pay lip service? Do you know what I mean? Like, without, I'm not trying to like um, yeah. implement anyone, but do you think a lot of it is because the, personally what I see on the likes of LinkedIn and Twitter and things is companies, you know, oh, this is a, a day we had for diversity and inclusion or you know they'll they'll post a lot about this but it's all kind of happy and smiles and this is everything we're doing but it's it's sort of like when you get into the they don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of it they're just trying to show the good aspects um do you think that companies pay lip service um without actually taking action 
as such? I think, I mean, I, I, I absolutely understand what you're saying in terms of, um, you know, is the um, support meaningful? Yeah. And I think you can only sort of do it on a um, company by company basis. So you really need to look under the hood, basically. So you need to talk to, um, you know, black and minority ethnic people in a company. You need to talk to the women. You need to talk to LGBTQ plus, older disabled, you know, all the um, different um, intersectionalities of identity that exist. Um, and I think you'll very, you very quickly get a true insight into a company in terms of what's honestly going on. And there's other things, you know, I mean, I, I think I wrote about this in the article. If, 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 if I sort of um, was looking for employment opportunities within, um, you know, the tech world, I, I would be looking at the way their board is composed. Um, I would be looking at the way their executive directors, what the composition of that is, um, their senior management teams, and then their middle management as well because the middle management layer is where the most interface takes place between staff and managers. And then I would be looking at their gender pay gap reports, um, what commitments they're making to equality, diversity and inclusion on their website, what their breakdown is, what their aspirations are, what the values are, what the culture is of an organization, you know, and trying to get as much evidence and information because I think that's the only way that you can really gauge this. Um, and you're right, there are sort of perhaps some companies, I mean, um, you know, some companies are absolutely com completely committed to this and um, want to do the right thing. And it's one of those areas that, you know, you never arrive at a place where that's it, the journey's finished and it's a done deal. Um, it's, this is a journey that you're on. Um, forever because um, our understanding of equality is evolving um, you know gender identity um, has evolved and people are able to talk more openly about the trans issues have emerged um, to the forefront um, so but it's about if, if the values of an organization and leadership are open and transparent and are truly about enabling that whole person to be able to come to work. Um, people will resonate with that, you know, and that means everybody from all different backgrounds being accepted for, for, for who they are. Um, so, I mean, in, in all the work that I've done, and I've said this before, employees in an organization have so much useful knowledge and actually recommendations in terms of, you know, for companies not getting it right, um, the things that they can implement to improve. But I think the absolute worst thing to do is to say that you're committed and for that to be, like you said, lip service, because there's no point in engaging and what you actually end up doing is breaking trust with your employees um because it, it's it's at least be honest about you know you're not really interested in it as an issue um mm -hmm. then you do this half-heartedly because it's not right um and you don't get the best out of your employees i mean diverse teams lead to greater innovation pipelines you know you're going to be then meeting the diverse needs of your customers and 
this is the bit I do not really understand in terms of the financial argument. You know, McKinsey did a report in 2014 um, where they ev evidenced this and the Boston Consulting Group um, as well, where there's a much higher return in terms of investment on these issues. I think it was like 14% higher with McKinsey and then um, Boston actually did a particular study that uh, diverse management teams, they have up to 19% higher revenue due, um, due to increased innovation. Um, and that study was actually based on 1,700 companies across eight countries. So it's about diversity in thinking, your experience, background, um, that the more diversity of opinion you have, it just makes for stronger competitive advantages. Um, so, you know, as a tech company, you are going to be more informed about um, sort of building the next generation of meaningful digital experiences that, uh, and services and products. Um, and it, it, it all, yeah, it's just, it, it's, it's a no brainer. <laughs> yeah. Even when you take it from a, if obviously everything should be taken from an ethical or a moral point of view, but yeah. even when you do take that away, it's actually, yeah, like you said, it's financial. It just makes good business. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, it goes without saying the moral and ethical argument for this, um, uh, because that, that, that's given. Um, I've come from a sort of a rights based family. My mother was a trade union representative. My father was a local po politician and there was a, an incredibly strong sense of rights when I was growing up. My father told me, you know, uh, that you well, myself and my sister, you're going to have to be three times as good. As everybody else out there. I mean, he experienced, they both experienced horrific racism when they came to England in the 60s. Um, and when he was applying for jobs, he he just couldn't get interviews and um, and he was he was qualified. So he he told my sister and I that we you know because we were Indian, because we were female, and because we weren't rich. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that it was going to be really tough out there um, and not to be defined by other people's labels or expectations. And that's kind of the way I've lived my life. Um, you know, and when I came to Northern Ireland in 96, 24 years ago, this place was so different. I mean, ceasefires had just been announced and there, there, there are, I mean, migration to this place has, is a longer history. There are sort of second, third generation Indian communities, Filipino, Chinese, well established, but um, it was just, I mean, I had some really funny incidents where I had moved here from Brussels at the time. I'd been working in the European Parliament and I'd grown up in, most of my childhood had been in England, um, some of it in India. And then when I came here, um, people, you know, sort of asked how long I'd been here. And I said six months. And then I was complimented on my English because the assumption was that I'd come straight from India. And I just remember falling about in hysterics of laughter. And, and you know, it's like when I told my mom, she found it equally funny. Yeah. And I mean, those were kind of funny things. Um, and then there was sort of not so funny things as well. But, you know, we experienced racism in England as well. It's um, I grew up in the 80s in England, uh, you know, we had skinheads at our school and um, you were kind of, it was there at the back of your head and that's something people here in Northern Ireland um, could really relate to easily in terms of sectarianism, you know, around being wary around which communities you're walking in, you know, 
times of day. Um, and I suppose the, the difference is that you can maybe hide aspects of that, but you can't really hide the color of your skin. No. Um, nor would I want to, um, but um, yeah. So, but I mean, th things have changed here, but um, there's still a long way to go. There are still too many people experiencing racist attacks. There are um, communities that arrive in the hope of building a better life because you, you don't migrate to another country. You know, it takes a huge amount of um, pain to leave a home and to set up home in a new country. You leave everything behind that you know. Um, and unless you've done that, I think there's very little understanding of how hard it can be to rebuild a life with no existing networks. Um, and that's one of the things that I've found the hardest here. People are kind of quite friendly when you first come, but then it stops. It's a sort of shallow friendliness because yeah. people here will have known each other since birth. And if you're not from here, it's, it's pretty much impossible to break into. Um, and that's, that's interesting, you know, um, I think, because I think if you, if you talk to the average Northern Irish person, they would pat themselves on the back and say how friendly they were. Yeah. Um, it's a bit more nuanced than that. That, that is really interesting because it is one of those things people always talk about, Irish people in general, you know, so friendly and, you know, they'd give directions to anybody in the street and stuff. But it is one of those things, you know, it's, especially the more rural areas, I think it's such a, a community-based place, but it's hard to integrate into that community, even, even if you're from, a, sometimes if you're even from a different county, you know, when you move, yeah. I can only imagine how hard that must be then if you're from a different country and you're a different race. <laughs> yeah. You just, I mean, there's, there's things that uh, the, obviously, you know, there's, there's wonderful things. I mean, I live in a beautiful part of the world. We've had an amazing quality of life. We've been able to give our children an incredible experience. And um, it, it's, it is a lovely thing to take a walk and for everybody to say hello to each other. Those things don't happen when I go back to um, Leicester. I actually forget myself sometimes <laughs> and say hello to people as I'm walking past them. But, you know, so it's, it's, it, it's not all bad, but um, there are, I, th I think for me, the, the way that I have managed life here is that I really also enjoy working in England and Scotland um, because uh, I, I suppose, because I, I, I grew up in England, there's you know a sense of home around that and my family's there. That's it for this week's episode of TechRec. For all things tech and business in Northern Ireland, visit syncni.com. Have a good week.